the key here is leveling with the patient. Once the feds have information, you have no control over where that goes. You know what this lady needs first? Is an airway. <laughs> I think I did it the wrong way. Oh, yes. Women are wired different than men. They are compassionate, they are more caring, they are nurturing, and I think it comes through in the practice. Rick's looking for a date. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it is the airway, 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 which always results in neurodamage or death. Where do they find these expert witnesses? I would like to take this gentleman out and shoot him. I've got stuff that's going to just rock your world, gentlemen. Hello, welcome. Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, Mel Herbert, our September Risk Management Monthly coming to you. Mm, September, what a wonderful month. It doesn't feel like a month since I saw you last. It doesn't. Listen, we got a bunch of stuff we got to do here, so let's get started. There's a, a study from the AMA, came out just recently. It's from their Physicians Practice Information Survey. 5,825 doctors regarding this response, 2007-2008. 95 malpractice lawsuits have been filed for every 100 physicians now in practice. This basically says your chances of getting sued are really, really good, particularly if you're older. They said 42% of all doctors have been sued, 20% at least twice. And so th there's an inevitability about this that you should get philosophical about. Yeah, understand though, Rick, the AMA looks at all doctors. That means pediatricians, that means psychiatrists, that means people in small towns. If you're an emergency doc, an emergency doc is sued probably every 17 to 21,000 visits. That means for most of us everywhere, somewhere between four and five years. Again, it depends on the state you're in. You're five times more likely to be sued in Florida than you are in South Dakota. But the truth of the matter is, it's just a part of doing business. And what you want to do is make this as the least difficult and traumatic to your life as possible. Yeah, right. Yeah, I remember you've said that this is a, not about protecting your honor, but rather protecting your assets. Correct. When we have car insurance and we get into an accident, we don't go sucking our thumb in the corner and in the fetal position for six months. <laughs> Even though it might have been our fault, this is just part of the business. You need to get with it. You can't let it destroy you. General surgeons and OBGYN doctors are sued five times more than pediatricians and psychiatrists. Two-thirds of the claims are dropped or dismissed or withdrawn, but the average defense cost of these claims is still considerable. $22,000 is a number they came up with. A quarter are settled which is very similar to the study that we reported last month a month ago and 5% are decided by some sort of alternative dispute mechanism like arbitration assassination <laughs> and, and that report last month said 7% of all lawsuits go to juries these guys said 5% according to the PIAA database so they're all pretty much in sync with each other and they said that 90% of these cases that go to trial are won by the physicians yeah they also say that the cost of going to trial in terms of defending you, is $100,000. So that's why these insurance companies will like to make a decision. Is it smarter to settle or smarter to take it, knowing right. that we're going to win most, but we could lose really bad in a jury trial as well. One of the things I thought about this survey that was very interesting is men are twice as likely to be sued as women. 
Wow. What an interesting statistic that is. So they speculated about why that might Rick, be. Rick, 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 Rick. <laughs> there has to be an adjustment to that. If well, you I'm ha- going to talk about that. Yeah, so okay. Okay, so number one, maybe because there are more males in higher-risk specialties. Correct. Does that sound reasonable? Okay. Yes. Maybe because women physicians are generally younger than male physicians, they've had less time to be sued. I think in general that's also Makes true. Makes sense, huh? Maybe because they work an average of five hours less per week and they have a less opportunity to get sued. Five hours less? Okay. And maybe because they are more often not practice owners. Practice owners are sued more than employees of practices. But they're left out of fifth one. Maybe... They are better doctors. <laughs> <laughs> they are nicer to their patients and don't well, You know, I must tell you, this is a 50% difference. This is not a subtle difference. And I have a prejudice. I'm going to tell you my prejudice, Greg. I've read a lot of primary care literature about how primary care doctors are perceived by their patients. And generally, if you want to put money on it, it's going to be generally in favor of the woman physician. And I think that there's some truth to the fact that if I had a family member and I wanted to send them to a doctor, assuming that I perceived the knowledge base to be the same, I think I would direct them to a female physician, whether it was a male member of my family or female. That might be totally unjustified, but I believe that's true. You've set us up here. What can we say to that? That is in any way. Women are wired different than men. They are compassionate. They are more caring. They are nurturing. And I think it comes through in their practice. I really do. What do you think, Mel? I think this is true. No, actually, I I totally agree with you. Although when I have a wiener problem, I do want to go see my male. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. But in general, yeah, I think there is something about that. But it's all airy-fairy and you can't really prove any of it. I also think women should be in charge of the world because they're less likely to fire atomic weapons at each other as well. Yeah. I mean, there's what's the point of it? Gold of my ear agreed with you on that one, by the way. Oh, we sure men are good for us, you know, putting logs on houses or something, I don't know, lifting heavy things. I'm not sure what we're good for. We're good for creating babies. Okay, do I have to listen to this <laughs> shit? Do I honestly have to listen to this crap? Well, we're on the West Coast. We're a little liberal. We're, yeah, you like really are. We are the yeah. touchy feelies. You're from Detroit, for crying out loud. Yeah, That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. The rust capital of the world. Yeah. Here we eat avocados and sprouts. Right. You probably eat meat, don't you? Yes, we do. Yeah, your high schools have cheers like first and ten or not or whatever. (laughs) I'm going to give you two more facts, two more facts from this paper. The study cites a 2006 New England Journal of Medicine report that indicated one quarter of claims involving errors were uncompensated. One quarter of claims involving errors were uncompensated, while the same percentage of claims not involving errors were compensated. A crapshoot. This goes along with the previous paper. That statement is a little confusing, but it basically says, if there were no errors, you could still lose. Of course. You could lose a quarter of the time. Lastly, they talked about things that the AMA could recommend in terms of processes that might limit malpractice suits. They basically talked about this Paul Ginsburg of the Center for Studying Health System Changes suggests that the AMA needs to shoot higher because AMA's broken record on this has been caps on awards. And this guy says caps on awards are considered band-aids regarding long-term solutions. They don't address improving quality. There is substantial opposition to caps, as you have mentioned in the past, Greg. Yep. And there is opposition here in California because the cap has never been changed. It's been in place for 15 or 20 years, Mel. I don't know. You probably were. The whole time I've been here, which is 20 years. It ought to be pegged to the average price of a home 
in Sierra Madre, California. Well, the, the cap is $250,000. and then, That's not the average price of a home in Sierra Madre, Well, if California. you capped it related to the value of houses, it would have gone up very high, and now it's back down again. Right. Okay. Exactly. I understand. So this guy says some other options which are to be considered are granting safe harbor for care delivered in accordance with accepted guidelines. That's kind of interesting. I followed the guidelines. There was a bad outcome, but I'm okay. Right. Also, health courts where judges experiencing malpractice cases choose their own experts and decide a case without a jury. Makes a lot of sense to me. Right. The AMA basically favors these reforms as well, but says that caps have been shown to work and it's the easiest way to go. Yeah. Understand this. The position of the AMA in healthcare in the United States has shifted dramatically. In 1945, 1946, about 75 to 80% of the doctors in the United States belong to the AMA. This year, that number will be somewhere in the 25 to 30% range. It has dropped dramatically. The AMA does not necessarily represent the opinions or attitudes of most of the doctors of the United States. And if you look at the age spectrum of the AMA, it is heavily biased in favor of very old doctors. It is very biased. You're pointing to me, Rick. I understand. And I am an AMA member. But most physicians now congregate around their professional society and not the AMA when it comes to looking at malpractice questions. All right. Well, enough of that study. Yes. Was there some take-home messages? Very similar to the prior study that we did. But I like the point about the women. (laughs) (laughs) Rick's looking for a date. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's move on again to some clinical stuff. We haven't finished up with our – all we did was I. We have E and T yet to finish. And so let's do that. Mel is going to start off with some – nasal issues. All right, so let's talk about noses and let's talk about nasal trauma. So somebody comes in, they've got been biffed on the nose. What are the high risk things you need to look for? And so we have a list here and septal hematoma is one big one. So you need to look for a septal hematoma. Why? Because your septum gets its blood supply from the outside in. If there is a hematoma between the septum and that overlying mucosa, then your nose falls apart and you look like a boxer. The cartilage collapses is basically the problem. I'll tell you this. When we get looking at all the ENT issues, I think there's one ENT issue that drives everything. That's airway. In my entire career, I've seen one case involving the nose, and that was a missed septal hematoma. After that, I have no cases about the nose. Well, Greg, you have to consider that maybe they're not sending you those cases. They've already identified a nose specialist, ENT, emergency doctor. Your population may be very skewed. Yeah, I there think There could be thousands of these cases. Yeah, there could be thousands of them. Crap. Basically, I don't know how we could make it any simpler than that. You look in the nose. You check the airflow. There's a hematoma there, yes or no. If there's a hematoma, you drain it and pack it. But I haven't x-rayed a nose in years. You're not going to well, do anything about it. We're going to talk about that. Yeah, you don't have to do that kind of crap. So you've got to drain these septal hematomas if you find them. So first look, you'll find the purple lump in the septum, Yeah, and then you're going to drain it, and you can either do it yourself. It's not a very difficult procedure. Robertson Hedges has a nice little chapter on it, or you can send it to ENT. But the key thing is recognition, and you won't find it if you don't look, and that means sometimes suck the boogers out, clean things up so you can get a good look in there and document, I looked at the septum. There was no hematoma. Thank you. We went wild last time talking about the slit lamp. I have the same view of the headlight. Learn how to use it. Be able to look inside the nose. It's real simple. And unless you can 
use the speculum, open it up, look down there. I don't know how you can comment on the nose without doing the exam. Right. We did a paper in the abstracts a real, real long time ago, so I don't know whether it's still true. <laughs> was that before or after Lincoln was shot? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it was yeah. around that time. Yeah. But they looked at all of these charts of people who had nasal injuries and how many specifically made any comment regarding the presence or absence of a septal hematoma. And the vast majority of the charts made no reference to the presence or absence. But it, so again, a, in all a, fairness. An affirmative statement. That Mel mentioned, there is no, I didn't find any, is, I think, a real valuable thing to put down. Right, but old papers reflect the people who have not been residency trained in emergency medicine. I can't picture a residency. I just can't picture... But there are doctors who practice emergency medicine, not residency trained. Right, but I can't picture any of them not saying no septal hematoma. That's the only reason the patient came in, was to find out if you needed to do something to their nose. All right. Uh, what about CSF rhinorrhea? I've seen some of these cases. Yeah, these are always fascinating. So you should look for CSF rhinorrhea. So if somebody's had head and neck trauma and they come in and they've got a blood nose, then ask yourself, is it just bleeding? Is it just an anterior epistaxis? Or is this fluid falling out of their CSF? So CSF tends to be clearer. You can do this dropper thing where you put it in, you've got triple rings and all this kind of stuff. But usually, in my experience, it's fairly obvious. One is sort of clearish gray and the other one's red. I'm sorry. (laughs) I think we're looking at different kinds of patients. In my career, if they've got a CSF leak, these aren't subtle people. This is not somebody who got hit by a tennis ball on the nose. These are bigger cases. Although I had a case, I hate to say it, of spontaneous CSF mm-hmm. rhinorrhea. Spontaneous. No sneezing, no nose. Hey, Doc, what's this stuff running out of my nose? And it's water. Yeah. It is water. It is not mucus. You can't make a... It's water. I had one that I remember so clearly being called the triage because the triage nurse didn't know if this was CSF rhinorrhea. She was actually on the ball or whether he just had a bad cold. And we just watched him for a while and I was like, this thing is dripping out of there. And we said it. That's right. What was the source? And his story was that he got biffed in the nose a week before, was fine, and then this thing started pouring out. So I don't know. I've heard of people talking about spontaneous CSF rhinorrhea. I've just never seen it in my entire well, I career. I just think we need to alert physicians that this thing can exist. I don't know that there's any big malpractice implications here. Well, although, obviously, if there's a trauma, then there's always this issue about antibiotics, right. no antibiotics, right, that kind right. of stuff. Yeah, well, I could weigh in on that, but it doesn't seem like, at least at our place for basal skull fractures, CSF rhinorrhea, a lot of the time, it's just watch them, It's just but watch them closely and see if there'll be a clot and it'll fuse and it'll, the rent in the dura and everything will get fixed by right. itself. They don't necessarily go in and rip your head apart to fix these, but you've got to know it's there. You've got to follow them closely. You've got to get an expert to follow them. You know, you mentioned that the blood supply of the septum comes from the outside-in kind of thing or something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought there was another explanation for this, that physically blood lyses cartilage, that if blood is physically proximate to cartilage for a long enough, it will destroy it. And I think there's some other models in medicine where that's true, like hemophiliacs who bleed into their knees, destroy their knee cartilages. They wind mm. up basically having these bone-on-bone kinds And if you of smack a shark, if a... Great white is coming at you. You smack him in the nose. After all, they're totally cartilaginous. <laughs> that takes care of them. I didn't know that. That's interesting. So that might be the mechanism too. Eh? No, well, I that thought... it just slowly erodes the cartilage away. But I think that the predominant feeling is the projections from that mucosa is into the cartilage, and that's where their blood supply comes from. All right, enough of that. Nasal fractures, Melvis. So nasal fractures. I thought this was dead. 
I thought nobody got nasal fractures anymore, but I was talking to a friend no, of mine who works in a... You mean x-rays. X-ray, right? X-rays. And said that Cedar sinai can I say that? I just did. That it is routine for the ENT docs to ask for nasal films at Cedar sinai And I'm like, I haven't done a nasal film since I graduated. Uh, no. The no. reason I put that there, there is a reason. I don't think really it has any malpractice implications, but there is this kind of belief that you don't need to do x-rays in people who have suspected nasal fractures. And I think that it's utterly absurd. When they're referred to their doctor, that doctor will get an x-ray of their nose if, in fact, they do not do any. It's obvious we have to move the septum over about two feet. But I think that we're deluding ourselves to say that the ENT doctor's not going to order an x-ray. I think that that's a mistake. I think they do, and I think Cedar's a reflection of it. Rick, you ignorant slut. (laughs) You know, and I know, that you're going to do nothing with that x-ray the key here is leveling with the patient. Here's the way I like to settle it with them. There's swelling today. If this doesn't go down and it doesn't look normal, we're going to do the study, but let's give it a week and they're going to be fine. You know what? Everybody with a little bump on the end of their nose doesn't need a film. The nose is a big deal. It's in the center of your face. It is important to everybody. We x-ray ankles like they're nothing. But, but you don't do anything. So Don't say we, white man. Yeah. yeah. I don't do it because I say exactly what Greg says. Look, you're big and swollen right now. And what we do with these depends on what it looks like. As long as you don't have a septal hematoma and you're breathing okay, wait a week and see if it looks a little funky to you. That's still early enough for them to go and crank on it and straighten it up. But getting an x-ray doesn't change things. Do I have a broken nose, doctor? Yes or no? Probably. Do you want a broken nose? Do you want to be able to tell your buddies? Yes. If you don't care, then I don't know. I like Neil Little's comment when he said, yeah, we should keep one nose x-ray in the department. So when anybody says, I want a nose x-ray, you can give it to him. Say, here. Well, that's the other thing. I don't know how to read a nasal x-ray anyway. There's all these things that are fused. You would need need two x-rays, the normal and the fracture. Right. right. You can just hand it to him, whatever you like. All right, all right, all right, all right. Then we've got a spontaneous epistaxis we need to think about. So if somebody comes in with spontaneous epistaxis, it's never spontaneous. They put their finger in there, Rick. They picked that booger out of there, and then they ripped themselves a new one. But that shouldn't stop you doing the next things, which is, if it's recurrent, if in anybody with epistaxis bad enough to come to the emergency department, look for bruising, look for petechiae, ask about... Plavix, ask about aspirin, ask about Coumadin, because these are the people that will have problems and continue to bleed. Yep. Usually they're older, and often this bleeding is not anterior but posterior. So you ask them all, all those things. If they're sanguinating and dying, you might have to reverse those things. And if you pack them anteriorly and they keep bleeding, I think you're going to have to pack them posteriorly. By the way, since we've made changes in how we pack anteriorly, the number of posterior packs has gone down dramatically. I mean, most of the new stuff, and I like the RhinoJet and some of those. Sorry that I mentioned a product name, but I think that we're better at it today than we were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. The vast majority of patients I see, if the anterior pack is placed correctly and carefully, do not need posterior packing. Yeah, those new devices, there's Rhino Rockets in it, they have changed my life. I remember when I first graduated and during residency, learning how to pack a nose with that gauze. And, Rags. 
It was horrible. The patient would be screaming, and I'm shoving this thing in there. And now I just pop a balloon in there, lube yeah. it up, and I blow up the anterior one. And then I Mel, Mel, blow up the posterior one. For those of us who are not mechanically inept, it wasn't that bad a deal. But I do remember that you did have to hold their head occasionally to put that thing in, and it wasn't pleasant. I'm just thinking I never wanted it done to myself. <laughs> yeah, That's right, for exactly. damn sure. Well, I think the point I wanted to emphasize here is when people come to the emergency department for a problem, they have kind of by some process, been selected there. Right. The, thing, the thing hasn't stopped when it should have stopped kind of thing. Most people are not that stupid. They would go to the ER, wait four hours to be seen, and exsanguinate in the ER waiting room, waiting to have their nose looked at. So I think that that applies to a lot of things that we see in the ER, that there is a self-selection process here that needs to be taken seriously. And so that's why I think it is important when these cases come in to just take a little look and around and see is there some ichymosis here? Can I lift up your shirt and take a look at your back and see if there's any petechiae here? Because there is a risk that this may be the first manifestation of ITP or something to that effect, and you'll never know it. So I'm certainly not one of these people who says you got to do a pro-time and PTT when every soul comes in with a nosebleed. I think that's utterly ridiculous, but I do think that there are some clinical aspects here. But we here. all have those cases in the elderly where we've picked up their leukemia or something like that by actually checking. I think they are a different group of people. The kid who's playing and bumped his nose, that sort of thing. But as soon as I see aspirin, Plavix, Coumadin, no previous history, all of that's important to look at. Nasal foreign bodies. So remember that person who stinks, the kids usually, look in the nose if they stuck something up there and now they're just disgusting. I think about it when you've got that person with a unilateral discharge from the nose. Usually this is a little kid problem and mum will come in and tell you my kid stinks. Bad. And it's something that's stuck in their nose. You've got to have the right tools to fix this if it's in kids. Then often the right tool is called sedation with ketamine or something else so you can get a good look in there and pull it out. And remember the button batteries. Kids shove the darndest thing up the nose. Most of the time it's not a big deal. They might stink and block things up. But button batteries can be an issue because they set up these local currents and they might also be leaking a little of that battery acid out of there. So they can fry nasal septa. They can go into their esophagus. And there's lots of bad things can happen with button batteries. So you want to pull those bad boys out. They are particularly nasty. I think the foreign body rule is this. Whenever you take a foreign body out of any orifice of a kid, look at the other orifices because if they've shoved a bean up an ear or someplace else, you've got one in the nose, count on it. The other thing is, I can't overemphasize Mel's point about sedation if you're going to do procedures because these kids can be difficult. Hey, Greg, you want to do the mouth? The mouth. We can do the mouth. The mouth, unfortunately, is hooked to a lot of other things, as you are well aware. It's always never a lawsuit involving the mouth. It's the things off the mouth, like the throat, where it goes, where we have lawsuits. But let's just talk for a minute about some of the things we will get. Oral infections are usually pretty straightforward, but there can be nuances here. I think that the peritonsillar abscess is not as common as it used to be but it's still there. But the way it affects you is not the tonsil, it's the compromise of what, Rick? The airway. Airway is what we're talking about. A, B, C. (laughs) What? A, B, C. And that's kind of the way it is. The other thing is that a lot of things around the teeth get infected. I'm not sure about your practice, Rick, but I'm sure, Mel, you must see rotten teeth uh, every single day. Yes, our patients either have no teeth 
or they have infected D. Right. And we see a lot of periape collapses, apocalypses. We see Ludwig's angina. Yeah. We see an entire spectrum really? of facial infections. Well, the nice thing about Very being impressive. in real emergency departments is nobody else has put their hands on them, and they certainly haven't had dental care for a while. So if somebody said, what's the most common peripheral block that I do? It's probably the inferior alveolar nerve which I got pretty good at blocking simply because they needed to have pain relief until the dental clinic opened that I would get them into. The other thing is, it's always amazing to me how double drug antibiotics, one of which ought to be flagile, goes a long way in clearing these people up. And so when they get into the dental clinic 12 hours or 15 hours or 24 hours later, you're ahead of the game on getting these people taken care of. In the vast majority of cases, those teeth are not salvaged. When they've got significant periacoblabscesses, they just need a removal of a tooth and then the building of some prosthesis at some point after that. But you can tell you're an emergency doc when one of the most common infections you treat is just underneath the tooth. Yeah, our dental clinic specializes in yanking teeth. That's all they do. What the antibiotics do they use? There is a big sort of clinder push there but penicillin flagell is the one you read in lots of the books but they are all florish right. they like clinda right yep. no well, they're basically talking about anaerobes the anaerobe killers are clindamycin and flagell and mm-hmm. so you could pick either one i don't know that one is better but i think one of the issues is that routinely people give penicillin for mouth infections and penicillin's fine i think but there are a lot of these pus formers right in there which are more specifically hit by the flagels and the clindids. But I don't know if there's any risk management issues here, except, and have you heard of this? any of these cases? Uh, they're a little, doing a little IND of that peritonsillar abscess and whoops, internal jugular, you have I, even, I, or internal carotid. You know me. what? I think that's one of those apocryphal stories which has been passed to us forever. I've heard about it. I've never seen the case, nor do I ever remember from my insurance company role ever dealing with a case. Well, Greg, just because you haven't seen it in your 2000, there may be another ENT-related ER expert who specializes in punctured carotids. But he's not going to get a lot of them, Rick. The other thing is, somewhere someone's going to write about it. I think we talk about it some. We don't actually do it very much. By the way, something to pass on is in a lot of my sort of street people who are in with pneumonia, look inside their mouth because a lot of the old men have aspirated things, infectious material from around their teeth. And I can't tell you the number of guys I've seen who have also had rotting teeth. They've been drinking. Now their mechanism to clear isn't good, and they aspirate the material. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because in the primary care literature, it's very clear that you will decrease the rate of nosocomial pneumonias in hospitals if you keep patients' mouths clean. Mm-hmm. So now there's this big movement in the ICU people who are kind of gorked out to clean their mouths out because just for the reasons that you mentioned. Yep. On our critical care edition, the critical care guys last month were talking about that. Just the simple chlorhexidine mouthwash, right. and I can't remember the protocol, twice a day, three times a day, significantly reduces. And it's the idea that they're having micro-aspiration, and if you can keep the colony counts down, then when they do aspirate, it's not so many bugs, and they can probably clear it. And they're bad bugs. These are anaerobes, the pus formers, the, yep. the fusobacteria. Yep. It's not like pneumococcus going down there. It's well, the fusobacteria thing. is the one that also affects and gives you Ludwig's angina and that sort of thing. It hangs around the mouth. It's just one of those opportunistic organisms which is out there. Obviously, the most common thing we treat in the emergency department is sore throats. 
And although it is a major area of medical interest, it's not much of an area of medical legal interest. No, I wouldn't uh, think so. And that's because most of the time, no matter what you do, if you gave them nothing, they would be better. If you gave them something, they get better. I've just not seen this go on to any major problems. You know, again, early in our training in medicine, we were taught all about, oh, it's going to go on and give you rheumatic fever. It's going to go give this and that. I don't think that that's considered true anymore, and I think the organisms actually changed. Mel may see rheumatic fever from people coming up from Mexico. Rick, have you seen rheumatic fever lately? Well, you need to be genetically predisposed, Yes. Uh, number one. Number two, this is not the garden variety strip. There are certain license plate numbers on these guys that are the, uh, the culprits, and so this is a fairly uncommon condition for sure. But there are other kinds of sore throats that you might need to know about that have some consequences, like the mono kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if you miss mono and they rupture their spleen or something like that, well, maybe you could be held accountable for I that. I have a case of that. You do? Oh, absolutely. That Fabulous. happened with an emergency physician, and this is about eight years ago or so, but it had to do with a mononucleosis case. Gave him penicillin, sent him home. The child continued to be tired, this, that, another thing. He was a high school football player who was an end. And as part of being tackled, somebody came up and one of the guys about to tackle him, he actually kicked him in the abdomen. And that child bled to death. He was just not feeling right after the game, that sort of thing. Parents went to wake him up the next morning and he had actually gone into shock. The emergency doctor he had the sore throat. The pathologist did a monospot on him. It was positive. He'd been to the emergency department, as I say, weeks before, and the emergency doctor was at least named in the suit. I was just kind of wow. making that up, but in your 2,000 cases, you are the expert on all of these kinds of things, and there you go. That's one of the reasons to make that diagnosis. You know, there are others that are less likely to be associated with potential malpractice cases. Right. By the way, it's also the biggest source of people who think that they're now allergic to penicillin or because somebody give them amoxicillin or something for their sore throat and it's mononucleosis and now they've got a rash two days later and they think it's the antibiotic. Just as a clinical tip, monospots are positive or negative. You know, there's no gradation. Right. I think that if I was going to be allowed one test and to do in a case like that, it would be a CBC because there you see the lymphocyte predominance kind of thing developing. Now they are at 35 or 40% lymphocytes. You wouldn't expect that in a strep throat. And I personally had mono. And for probably three weeks, a mono spot was negative while the white count was wacky, wacky, wacky. So you can order both, obviously, but the CBC has a unique role in the early picking up of mono. You mentioned the doctor had given them penicillin. Them, right, that's uh, the, yeah, that's the ampicillin rash right. associated <laughs> with the mono. There's no reason to give these people antibiotics at all. Diphtheria is another one that comes up. Have you seen any diphtheria? I've never seen a case of diphtheria. I have. Well, but you worked on an Indian reservation, and Mel, you work with people coming up from Mexico. But I haven't seen it, actually. I've never seen it. Never diagnosed. I've never diagnosed it. <laughs> Failure to diagnose, Mel. Failure, Failure to diagnose. Have you um, actually seen a case of diphtheria? Yes, when I was in Indian Health Service in Parker, Arizona, there were three young doctors there that didn't know their ass from their elbow, me being one of them, and somebody had a bad sore throat, and somehow we made the diagnosis of diphtheria. One of the things about this disease is 
it is a systemic disease, and the fact is that that white thing on the back of your throat is not really an exudate. It is dead tissue. Mm -hmm. So these bugs destroy the protein in tissue, and the size of that pseudomembrane relates to the amount of exotoxin that these bugs are producing. So these bugs then cause myocarditis and neuropathies and all kinds of weird right. stuff. So this sore throat patient had more than just a sore throat, and one of our doctors made this diagnosis. That's why they're pushing this DTAP or what is it? That yeah, big D, little D. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it's still got the diphtheria in it. And my feeling is we've gone through an age now where we've lived in happiness because enough people got immunized that the herd immunity took care of those few people who didn't. The herd immunity in certain groups around the country is falling, and I think that we're going to start to see diphtheria again. Oh, there's no question there are outbreaks of diphtheria on an ongoing basis, whether they're particularly vulnerable populations or what, but this is not a unheard of disease. Lemur's syndrome. Yeah, I know about it. I've seen one in my career, but if you do miss this one, it, it is a problem. These are the people that have essentially a bacterium which is set up in their venous system, and the pain will be in their neck, but it may run all the way from the clavicles all the way up to their ear, and they're tender, and these people are sick, and they get a septic thrombophobitis which may go both up and down and be a severe problem to the patient. Yes, it's the septic thrombobitis of one of the jugular veins, and so that these things are spitting out septic emboli down into the lungs. Mm -hmm. This is not an unheard of disease, and you need to be aware of it. It is the patient who's got a sore throat and unilateral neck pain. That is a typical, and one case that I saw, this guy really had a substantial amount of neck pain. Right. So be aware of it. Not all the sore throats are virus or strep. Absolutely true. Anybody who kind of comment about pharyngeal foreign bodies? Yeah, I don't like them. I don't like them because in the posterior pharynx there, there's a lot of large structures. And so I've had a couple of these. And the ones that I've had are little kids. So as a little kid, like four years old, running around with a pencil or something in their mouth, falls over and harpoons themselves on the back of the throat. And you've got to think, what else is back there? And Big Red is back there. And one I'll never forget, it was just that pencil on the throat, fell over, pulled the pencil out, doesn't look like much. But then ENT actually said, could you do a CT scan? And sure enough, there is a rent right in the carotid there. And they didn't do anything. They just followed the kid and decided to do non-operative sort of repair, just follow the kid. But it scared the crap out of me. What's follow the kid? You admit those kids overnight, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. The child was admitted and there was lots of discussion and radiology. Should we do something? Vascular, right. everybody. And they decided most of these probably get better, particularly little kids without therapy, but very scary kind of case. <laughs> you know, we speak about these things like it's a you know, simple mechanical problem, like it's replacing the drain in the kitchen. <laughs> when you've got a small kid and you're talking about working deep in that space on the largest artery second largest artery in the body it frightens me because all you got to do is open that thing up and then you're off to the races well there's also the adult who ate some fish and now that you think there's something stuck there doc i don't know if for sure they're pointing right around their larynx kind of thing above it below it and i think one of the things that comes up there as well is it just scratched or it's still there so you basically you're going to try to take a look as best you can with the mirror and their headlight and all of that stuff and pull out their tongue tool for about (laughs) a a, a foot or two but i think in terms of 
risk management issues, I think the days of the soft tissue neck are way over. Yes. This is a CT, CT, CT. If you're basically going to do some imaging, trying to find that fish bone or whatever else this foreign body is. And it's not perfect for fish bones. I mean, fish bones are basically cartilaginous. They don't always show up well. I think if there's real question, first of all, in most cases, it's not an emergency. And let's reiterate that with most of ENT stuff. The foreign body removal is not an emergency out of the nose or out of the external ear canal. I have seen docs get in trouble by trying to take the kids and try and get those foreign body out and penetrate the tympanic membrane. I've seen them cause significant bleeding in the nose by trying to get it out. You know what? Take a deep breath. Relax. Same way with something that's down. I'm sure I've got a fishbone doctor. You know what? You can call ENT, get it set up, and they can do a scope in the morning or something to take a look at that. You don't have to do it that night all the time. Although you would like to identify it. And so, yes, right. we did the CT and radiologist does see something there. Therefore, you can feel confident that when you call the ENT doctor, there is something to remove. Yeah. It is demonstrated on the film. Thank you right. very much. Uh, yeah. I agree that soft tissue of the neck, looking for something like that, that's something left over from the last century. It'd be like getting a brain scan. Nobody does it. There's no reason to do it. Let me tell you my algorithm and see if it's the same one you use. So a lot of people come in and they've got this, I think there's a fishbone there. And you look down and I actually put lidocaine in. I even do sort of the semi-awake intubation sometimes. I can get a good look. I don't see anything. And if it's, say, 12 o'clock at night, used to see a lot of these, I would say, come back tomorrow afternoon if it's still there. Because the vast majority of these, it's just a little nick or a, a scratch and it's gone. If they're drooling and I think I'm really worried, I'll scan them today. But a lot of the time I just say, let's give it a little time because most of the time this goes away. Do you do that or do you scan them all? No, I don't scan them all. And I would be perfectly happy, depending on the distress level of the patient, even if they've got something small down there, what happens is the body becomes irritated. It puts fluid around it. And they pass a lot of these things. That doesn't bother me a bit. Kids bother me more. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing about button batteries is they do show up on films, no matter which one you do. But I've had a lot of people, very few people in my career have come back for the right. complaint. Yeah, it's because they went to a better hospital. <laughs> 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 a but I got to tell you, I remember one clearly where I was doing the usual thing. I put 4% lidocaine, nebulizing an asthma thing. And then I take a laryngoscope and I actually physically tube the patient. And looking down there, sure enough, there's a bone. And then I was like... Well, now I don't know what to do. Do I just tug it, pull it out, yeah. or do I leave it there? So I just pulled it out. Yeah, just pull and it then out. I scared him and it was fine. But it was weird. You're like, holy, shit, there's actually one in a thousand actually has a boat in it. As has something in there. <laughs> My opinion is a little different than yours. I basically am not assuming that it's a scratch. We are worst first doctors. I'd like to know because I don't think you can rely upon this. And there have been cases of these bones migrating into spots and getting mediastinitis and all of these other kinds of things. So it's generally real easy to get a CAT scan. And as I mentioned before, these people have stratified themselves. They are not every Tom, Dick, and Harry. They have decided, I got a problem. People do not want to go to the ER despite what many people believe. And so I think I take them seriously. And I think it's not unreasonable to have a low threshold for doing a CAT scan rather than saying, well, it's probably discretion. Do you have data on that? Do you have a paper? You're the guy with the paper. No, I don't. Yeah, because I think that would be an interesting question to study as to what is the reasonable pretest probability here 
that we're going to find something. Well, you know, maybe I should be more careful. You know, there is this issue about CT scans and thyroid cancer and all this other stuff. I acknowledge that, but I think you have to weigh both. Yeah, there are some people who come in who say, I can feel it. It's right here. And you just look at them like, the chance this person has it is really different than the other person over here. And, you know, the other thing is they're pointing well below their larynx. They're pointing right here. You can look forever. You're not going to see it. Yep. I think you can stress. I hope you can because that's how I've been doing. Next is the question of angioedema. And I don't know about you guys, but until the ACE inhibitors came along, and Mel, this isn't for you, but we both practiced before there were ACE inhibitors. It really does make a difference. We practiced before that we knew what ACE was. Yes. (laughs) There was nothing to inhibit back then. Exactly. Nothing to inhibit it. Exactly. And it certainly has come along with ACE inhibitors and a rare disease before, and now it's not rare. And it's got to be the first question when these patients come in. Let me see the drug list again. And there it is. It does show up on those drugs. We see an extraordinary number of these at County because African-Americans, more like they get it, we have a pretty big African-American population. And it varies from my lip on one side's a little swollen yeah. to my head is going to explode. Mm-hmm. It's very impressive. I've got pictures and videos of three intubations that we did. You're usually taught, and I think it is true, that most ACE inhibitor-induced angioedema is anterior. It's lips and not so much tongue and certainly not so much posterior pharynx. So they're sitting up and they look bad, but they're breathing fine and you put the scope in and they're okay. But we've had a number of cases where they put the scope in and the ENT doctor turns pale. There's one centimeter of cord less, let's go. So we see a lot of these. And unfortunately, the thing that sucks about it is that nothing works very well for it. You can give them the epi and you can do all the stuff, but it's bradykinin mediated. It's not epinephrine mediated and you can't shrink them down very fast. It just sort of has to run its course, as it were. So you've got to make sure the airway's okay. Take it early if you think they're swelling back there, and then it goes away after a day. Do you, do you understand why fresh frozen plasma works in these patients? Well, there's a subset that it works in people with C1 esterase deficiency. So there's a genetic abnormality, C1 esterase deficiency, and you give them the fresh frozen plasma, which gives them C1 esterase, which reverses it. I'm not sure how well it works for the pure ACE inhibitor form, but maybe there's a subset of those. I don't know enough about it. Maybe there's a subset where it's partial C1 SOA's deficiency. Right. Yeah, I think people say you could give it a try because you don't know who these genetically predisposed people are, so they talk about giving some fresh frozen plasma. And if you go onto the internet about this internet, there's all kinds of drugs you've never even heard of that have been tried in these cases, and I don't even know whether they exist in your hospital. So the bottom line is is you have to be real careful because we don't have any effective treatment other than mechanical ventilation, something we're not necessarily interested in doing. No, 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 you're not interested in that. Yeah, there is recombinant C1 esterase available now. So you have to give a lot of FFP, but if you've got one of these people or families with the disease, then you can get recombinant C1 esterase. You know, and I know of no lawsuits myself, and I've been looking at the various journals about lawsuits with this problem with the angioedema. I just haven't seen that as a trend, but it could come. I just don't know. And that's because the vast majority come in with big lips, but the number that are actually closing their airway is very small. Okay. Ricky, the ear. The ear. The ear, the ear, the ear. Infections of the outer ear and canal. 
you would think, okay, you got a bad external otitis. You wear a swimming ear kind of thing. We're going to give you some eardrops, and I think it's bad enough. We're going to give you some antibiotic. We're going to give you some Keflex because it's a skin infection kind of thing. Wrong, 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 wrong. Right. These are pseudomonas, 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 and that's why people are now using these Cipro eardrops, which I don't recommend. They're $40 a bottle for these things. It's ridiculous. Right. But also, that applies to the outer ear. You know, you sometimes you see this red poochy ear kind of thing, and it's sticking out a little bit. That's a pseudomonas generally as well, so that you want to give something that covers pseudomonas, maybe staph as well, but pseudomonas is at the top of the list. Yeah. The real danger there is not just the cellulitis, but you've got cartilage under there, and once that becomes involved, the ear looks real ugly. Moving on with the ear foreign bodies, little Johnny's put a bead in the ear. Right. And I think one of the key things there is they may need sedation. You need the right tools. Here's a trick. That tissue glue on the end of a Q-tip, you can see the thing and you touch it and you glue it to that little bead and you pull it out. Because trying to get behind it like a curved grabber hurts like hell because it's already the canal's full up with something. And it cuts the tissue. Right. So the key thing is the right tools, which also applies to the nose. You know, sometimes the kids put up just some paper or something in their nose, and you can get that with a tweezer. But sometimes they also have a bead up there or a pea or a bean or something like that, and it's almost impossible to get out because you can't get behind it very well. I've blown them out, blow into their mouth, close off the other nastril, and you can loosen it up. I forgot all about that. The Beamsley Blaster. Yeah. Beamsley Blaster. Beamsley used to come to Essentials a lot, the guy that described that. Is that what – there was a guy's name on that? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't didn't know that. Yep. Well, I want to know, do we get sued much for the dreaded thing is we're going to miss the posterior cerebellar bleed in the old patient? Do we have any cases like that? Do you see anything? Well, of course. We, we said <clears throat> it was peripheral vertigo and it turned out to be a big giant. It, exactly. Madness. I've seen that, but I don't really consider those as part of the ENT cases. Well, I think the distinction is, is this ear-based vertigo or is this brain-based vertigo? Well, the question is, is it end-organ disease or is it central midline disease? Is it from the brain itself? And what you have to conclude is this. When they look at patients who are above the age of 60, God, I hate to say that. <laughs> the very elderly. The, the very the elderly. Of age. Don't make comments like that to Rick <laughs> and I. And as soon as you start to go up above 60 and you've got new onset vertigo, about a quarter of those patients actually have something central. This is the sign of a cerebellar involvement of their brain. And I think that the 20-year-old, the 30-year-old are not the issue here. What you're looking at is the elderly with new onset vertigo. The chances that those people have a labyrinthitis or a neuronitis really are relatively small. I'd be concerned about the fact that this was some type of small stroke. So the idea here is do all of these people get CAT scans or MRIs? And the answer is honestly no, because if you feel confident that this is peripherally based vertigo, they were fine when they went to bed last night. Now they woke up, the room is spinning around, they're vomiting. And it's positionally based and all I the other things. I turn my head to yeah. the left doctor and, and it gets worse. I see a little horizontal nystagmus. You might hear a little bit of a noise in one ear. You've pretty much made the diagnosis of peripherally based vertigo. They don't need a bajillion dollar workup kind of thing. They're often challenging to treat in terms of suppressing their brain's perception of the unequal messages it's getting from the ears in terms of where it is in space. But I do think it's important to know the characteristics of ear-based vertigo. Ear pain with a normal exam. Doctor, my ear hurts. You look in there and you don't see anything wrong. And I think one of the keys that we should be aware of is there's huge opportunities for referred pain to the ear from all kinds of scalp and TMJ and tooth and neck-related issues. Annoying spouses. 
Yes, <laughs> a lot of things. So you got to look all over the place because distribution of nerves around the ear is particularly rich. I think that was pretty much all I had for ENT-related problems. Any others that you might think of that we skipped over? I think that's a good list, but I want to know if there are any ENT cases that Greg might have. Yes, oh, absolutely. And what we have to do is divide them into two groups, things that have to do with the airway and everything else, because it is the airway, 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 which always result in neurodamage or death. Those are the cases. One of the cases I was going to mention, and I think we've sort of hit around Robin Hood's barn here, is the emergency doctor was sued for trying to get the pee out of the ear. And he used, as Rick said, a curved small piece of metal to bring it around and pull that out. Now, the child lunged during that procedure, as you might imagine. Sedation was not used mother was kind of holding over the kid along with one of the nurses the kid came up and of course the doctor did not have his hand to act as a spacer there as he's working on this and it went into the middle ear and actually disrupted the ossicular chain which had to be rebuilt and was sued by mother for the hearing damage to the child Ouchie, that, I got to That's what I fear so much doing that. I just want that kid gone. All right. Ketamine, bye-bye, so you can't buck. Yeah, and another older case was the packing, the anterior packing of an elderly patient, which actually was both anterior and posterior. Bleeding was stopped, was looking comfortable. The doctor sent that patient home. During the night, because of the way the posterior packing was placed, the patient aspirated the posterior pack. Mm. Those are the days when posterior pack was brought up. You passed a red rubber catheter through the nose, brought it through, tied it, brought it back. It was not adequately secured, and that pack was aspirated. Really, the number of cases I have of ENT things is very, very small. But both of those, I think you understand what the problems were. That's why I do counsel on the fact that unless it's involving the airway, Almost all foreign bodies up there, there's no immediate need tonight that you dig those things out. And if you don't feel comfortable with it, don't wander where you shouldn't be. That's what ENT is all about. Well, there is this litany of things that we're supposed to be aware of regarding posterior packs and uh, the complications associated with it. And the one that you mentioned is on that list of four or five. That, that, yes. But that's when we're using rags, and the rags would go down and they'd aspirate that thing. And I think when we're using the... Uh, These were Vaseline Plagets, they called them, didn't they, at that point in time? Yes. I almost what? killed a patient putting one in once. Yeah. Because the way we did it was exactly that. You put a tube down their nose, out their mouth, tie these gigantic balls on there, and, and as you pull it back, back, you're going right over the top of their epiglottis. I had this lady turn purple in front of me as I'm trying to shove it up there. Then I pulled it out again, like, you know what this lady needs first? is an airway. (laughs) Now I'll do it. I think I did it the wrong way. Uh, Yes. But, you know, you're right. Most of these people who have these bleeds posteriorly, they're not on the septum, which are usually very easy to pick up if you look and you have good light. There's this issue about hypoxia, arrhythmias, ischemia, especially in the elderly who have concomitant diseases that will make those things worse, like CHF and COPD. So the general rule is posterior packs come into the hospital. But, you know, I think the transition between an anterior pack and a posterior pack becomes very subtle with these devices now. Right. Well, where am I actually stopping this bleeding when the thing's four inches back into the nose and you've blown up everything known to man? So these have been reported, they're real, and I think the common belief is people who have posterior bleeds 
ought to come in the hospital, especially when you've compromised. It's not just about the fact that they got something in their nose. Remember the nasal cardiac reflex where you would put cold water around somebody's nose and it would slow their heart down? That's called mammalian diving, Rick. Yes, well, that reflex. Well, there is some weird wiring about your nose going to your heart kind of thing that we really don't understand. But remember in the old days when somebody would have PAT and you would put their face in a bowl of cold water? I did that all the time. It worked. Well, that was the point. There was this reflex that goes from a cold thing or some stimulus around your nose to your heart. So this is not one of the times to say, I go home, it's okay, it's no thing. So I would be careful in those cases. Let me give you one that is just going to fry your butt. Don't upset Here's a case. Me, I understand, Don't Mel, me. but you know what? Our readers want the real thing. Now, this is one of those cases where all I have to do is hear the name of the plaintiff's expert in this case, and I'm enraged. I've opposed him so many times, and we will not use the name here. But here's the case. Man and wife are involved in a motorcycle accident, both injured. A man is on the bike driving. Wife is hanging on the back. Wife was deemed more serious by the emergency doctor in the emergency department. Small department, single coverage, He's looking at them. The wife looks sicker. He sends her to CT first. Well, as it would happen, while she's in the CT scanner, the husband crashes. While she's getting her CT scan, the man dies from hypovolemic shock due to blood loss, and the doctor is sued for failure to recognize a splenic injury, and an emergency doctor says, oh, you should have been able to tell which one was the sickest. Now, understand this, vital signs on both patients were about the same. The wife was more confusional with an injury to her head as well. The husband had reasonable vital signs when this went over. He had to make a decision at that time. And somebody was willing to show up and said, oh, if they'd only sent him to the CT scan first, he'd be alive today. Now, the reason I bring this case up, you're not looking happy, Mel. I'm not happy, Greg. <laughs> yeah. Just understand, there was somebody with MD, F-A-C-E-P after their name, who was willing to show up and said he would have known which one to send, regardless of the fact that there was no in-house trauma team at that hospital. This is a small hospital. There's no in-house trauma team at your place, is there, Rick? No, sir. No. And you can't project what we do at 400 of the hospitals in the United States onto the 4,200 emergency departments of the United States. One out of 10 might be able to do something. Anyway, he showed up. But what will make your heart glad is that there was a defense verdict, and the jury said, no, he really couldn't tell at that moment in time. Their $100,000 was well spent in defending this case. The only reason I point this out is we're always going to be in positions where we have to make decisions. We're not omnipotent. You're not going to know the answer to every question. And I think it should be heartening to everyone that a jury of our peers came back and said, you're right. You did the best you could under those circumstances. God love you. Where do they find these expert witnesses? Unless there was something you're not telling us that it was clearly obvious. No. <laughs> I would like to take this gentleman out and shoot him. Oh, or gentlewoman. Oh, oh, me. Don't get me going on this because this gentleman I've seen appear in probably 100, maybe 200 cases. Uh, he's one of those. And let me just tell you, if you have adequate money, you can get any opinion you want. Oh, you want to read that? 
poem? Oh, the poem. Joe Lex sent us. Actually, these are lyrics from some song by... Don Henley. Uh, yeah, I don't know what it is. But I thought the lyrics were kind of cute about expert witnesses. It goes, Today I made an appearance downtown. I am an expert witness because I say I am. And I said, gentlemen, and I use that word loosely, I will testify for you. I'm a gun for hire. I'm a saint. I'm a liar. Because there are no facts, there is no truth. Just data to be manipulated. I can get you any results you'd like. What's it worth to you? Because there is no wrong, there is no right. And by the way, I sleep very well at night. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> That's a real uplifting. <laughs> yeah. What is the name of that song? I wanna <clears throat> yeah, we like that. Um, That's very, very yeah, good. Joe knows everything about music. He was a DJ in his past life. Yeah, yep. Back in the 70s. I don't know if that was during the lost years. He never tells <laughs> us about the lost years, but there were some years that were lost. Yep. John Henley's The Garden of Allah. The Garden of Allah. Okay. The Garden Allah. of Allah. i got to get that. All right. Let's, More cases. Okay. More cases. Difficult case. Listen to this one. Gentlemen, I really want your opinion on this because there are a lot of issues. This is a case. Failure to diagnose a teenage football player's concussion. Blame for brain injury when he suffered concussion two weeks later. Listen to the facts of the case. The patient was involved in a football game, banged his head, evaluated by the trainer who was provided by the orthopedic associates and sports medicine group there in town, and he was cleared to go back to practice. Said I just, the phrase is, had his bell rung. Okay. Two weeks later, he's playing in a football game, and he suffered a collision with another player, and in fact, he had two major collisions in that game, went to the sideline with dizziness, began to vomit and collapse. There was an orthopedic surgeon at the game as a fan who recognized this as a brain injury. The patient was promptly taken to a hospital and surgery was performed to relieve uh, swelling on the brain. does not say in this report as to whether there was a hematoma. However, he suffered substantial permanent brain injury. They went back and sued the person, the physician who saw, and those of us who work in smaller towns are in this position all the time. They'll bring a kid in on Friday night who's been in the game. Is he okay? Can he go back? Can he play? They sued him for the permanent brain injury because if he'd properly picked this up, had properly done a diagnosis and a return to play program, some of which are being advocated now, and, in fact, EMA has had papers on this mm -hmm. issue multiple times. The physician is sued, and you've got to remember, a brain-injured kid, there's no more expensive case in medicine. What do you think? What are your ideas here? What should we be doing? If you're the emergency doc who saw this kid the first time two weeks ago, what are you going to do? Well, it depends. I mean, ASAP just came out, and ASAP News, I got it two days ago, with their new concussion guidelines, and I can't remember whose guidelines they were. And I haven't done them in detail, and actually we're going to do them on MRAP, but the basic summary is if there's any evidence of concussion, I think that the current guidelines are saying at least two weeks symptom-free before you return to play. You might be able to go back earlier for practice that's not bashing your head. So I'd have to look at those guidelines, but we don't know if the second injury was really caused because he'd had a prior injury. Maybe he just got hit really hard. So I don't know, but there are guidelines that are accepted by the NCAA and other groups. 
they are not really based on great science, but they are based on this concept that a second injury within that time frame when you're symptomatic may be associated with significant worse outcomes than if you have a period of time where you're asymptomatic. So I don't know how much they're based on science, but those guidelines are out there and I think you should follow them. And if you don't know them like I don't know right now, you just do a Google search and say, what are these guidelines? Well, I think that what's happened over the years, a lot of doctors with the best of intentions, guys who used to play football, they still like the smell of jack straps and hang around the <laughs> locker room and all that sort of thing, are happy to play doctor. Family practitioners do it, emergency docs do it, orthopods do it. They should just understand that there are criteria out there. The other thing is you can't succumb to pressure from the coaches. That is, they need their kid back in for the big game. You know what? It's football. Life goes on. And if they're going to be putting these kids back in, they ought to think about it. Now, I'm not happy with the fact that this suit took place. I think there's very little evidence that the one affected the other. And during the time interval in between, the child was essentially symptom-free. But if you're going to dabble in that, understand there are risks. If you're going to donate your time to the high school team, does the high school's insurance cover you? When you get sued, what standard are you going to be held to? That of an athletic trainer, that of an orthopedic surgeon, that of an emergency doc? And when they ask, doctor, what training have you had in managing these kinds of cases? What literature do you read? Just understand... I don't think the case I've just presented is an odd or unusual case. I think there are emergency doctors who are presented with this every single week during football season. I agree with Mel that there are these guidelines. They've been evolving over years. They are aware of this second, I think it's called the second, second impact syndrome. Second impact, yeah. yeah, and it's real. And so they want to protect these young people. And I agree with you 100%, Greg. If you're going to take on the role of being the team doctor, you better know what you're doing. And this is one of the more important areas because you're talking about brain dysfunction. So there's this pressure to get the kid back into the game, but all of the recommendations are very conservative, and you're going to be flying in the face of, oh, well, doctor, are you familiar with these recommendations? You have violated them grossly and let Mr. So-and-so go back into the game, and now look what happened. So I think that the broader issue here is the responsibilities of a team physician to be aware of these phenomenon and these guidelines. Yeah, I agree with that. And there's no reason for any physician to take on this kind of responsibility without proper protection. Emergency physicians are almost always covered, as is, where is, for the emergency department they work in and for the cases they see that there has been a certain amount of premium paid on the case. For you to go ahead and volunteer your time, just understand somebody has to pick up that liability. And there's no obligation for your carrier for your work in the emergency room to pick up these other obligations unless you have a previous agreement and a letter attached to your insurance policy. And Greg said at the beginning, there's a lot of different groups that have guidelines, the CDC have guidelines, the NCAA, but the return to activity is a graded return to activity now. It used to be just asymptomatic for some amount of time, one week, two weeks, whatever it is, but now it's graded return, and so you go back and you exercise, and if you get headaches or you don't feel good, you drop back and there's no activity. So you go through this stepwise approach, 
And if you fail at any step, it's back to the beginning and start again. So they're very conservative and they can take quite a while to get through. And we just say again, you've got to know these guidelines if this is what you're going to do. Or you better look the things up if you're not doing it all the time like me. I'm going to give you a case now what is, from a litigious standpoint, a very conservative state, a very good state for doctors. But it's one you ought to hear because it has implications toward emergency medicine. A home health care worker who had been arranged by a family physician missed a regularly scheduled visit on an elderly patient because of a weekend, a holiday weekend. They blew off Friday and they blew off Monday. When they showed up, this elderly patient was dehydrated, laying on the ground, probably had a hip fracture and a shoulder injury. The patient did poorly in the recovery phase and died. The jury came back to find the initial award against because obviously the clinical damages here, this is an elderly patient, they're not working, they're not supporting anybody, came back with an award about $650,000. But they tacked on a compensatory damages award of $2.1 million against the health care providers in this case. And the reason was failure to follow their usual and customary pattern. Why do I bring this up? To us, we don't arrange this sort of thing. Everybody's now in this deal about we're going to do phone calls, callbacks, in which they do it. If you've now established as policy in your department, you're going to call on Mrs. Smith to see how she's doing. Now, let's say you don't call on Mrs. Smith and she's at home languishing in pain or she's not getting better. What this is talking about is an obligation outside of our usual clinical setting Are we setting up a policy and a standard by our behavior? I know it's good public relations, we think, anyway. I know hospitals like it. But understand who's got that liability and responsibility and what it is. I'd be very careful if I was a physician to extend my license and my insurance coverage beyond the levels of the emergency department for this sort of thing. If the hospital wants a callback program, let it be the hospitals, managed by nurses, not medically related. They should not be giving medical advice, just kind of to see how they like their visit. But if they really want to follow people up, get them back in to be seen by a doc in a certain amount of time. This is an interesting case because it talks about liability projected beyond our usual scope of practice. And I think we ought to take this into consideration. Mm, That's interesting. So you're saying we could set up a situation where we do telephone follow-up on everybody, but then if we didn't do telephone follow-up and something went wrong, they could say your usual and customary practices to do follow-up, you didn't on this one, therefore you are in trouble. Doctor, you'd set up a standard. Isn't it true, doctor, that you call all of these patients simply because you know they could have a problem? Isn't that right, doctor? Yes. Yes, I understand that. Don't cry. Don't cry, Mel. Oh, geez. Now we've done it. We've set him off. But you understand how this could be used against you. With all the best intentions in the world, this could come back to bite you in the butt. So I think if you're going to set up a standard at your hospital that someone calls, have it be the nursing staff, have it be the hospital's responsibility. But I don't want you or your group to have to be potentially bearing that kind of risk and responsibility. They're not calling as the agent of the physician. If you are calling as the ostensible or apparent agent of the physician, that's a problem, in my opinion. 
Rick. Well, you know, those calls are not just for PR. They are soliciting, if you're feeling worse, come back in to check with your doctor. They are giving medical advice in these cases. That is not being given by the physicians, and that medical advice is under the umbrella, I guess, of the hospital and the nurses. It's not on the part of the physicians in any way. Probably not. Well, it better be so stated in policy somewhere. And if I was your insurer, and in my role as the insurance company, I have certainly seen these situations where they wanted us to take things on. I don't want to take that on for my docs. If I don't have control of it and I can't make sure it works every time, don't give me liability without responsibility. And I think that these things need to be considered very carefully. All right. All right. Let me give you one other case, only to discuss an issue we have not discussed before. This was a case in Nevada which had to do with failure to perform proper tests for a potential stroke. This was a 39-year-old patient who actually came to the emergency department and had some left hemiplegia, some problem with their face, some problem with their speaking. For reasons beyond me, the physician diagnosed this as a form of Bell's palsy. A very severe case. A a (laughs) severe case, yeah, that went. Now, before the case had gone to the jury... Here's what happened. There was a discussion between plaintiff and defense, and they did a high-low. Now, we haven't discussed what high-lows are. Yeah, we have. Sounds like Vegas. Yeah, well, it is high-low. No, we did that. Did we? Yes, we did. Well, because this was a very interesting case, and the thought behind it was this. The plaintiff knew that he had a case which, as we talked before, most of these go in favor of the doctor. But they had a bunch of bills stacked up here that they had to pay. Now, what the defense said was, our chances of losing are small, but if we do lose on this case, it's a big hit. So this was the perfect for a high-low. They went low, 200,000. No matter what, they said no liability, whatever, it's 200,000. The top of this was 900,000. So even if they came back and said, you get 2 million, the actual settlement's always agreed at 900,000. And if they say you don't win a nickel... You actually got 200000 They still get 200000 And in this case, again, for reasons I don't know all the interaction and how the case progressed. By the way, I know both the emergency department plaintiff's witness and defense witness in this case. I know both. It came back, and the Nevada jury found in favor of the doctor. It was a defense verdict, but it still cost him 200000 Now, here's the question. Is that $200,000 reportable to the data bank? Answer, no. Because you were found adjudicated not responsible. So all it was was the cost. None of this was attributed to allocated loss adjustment. None of this was attributed to sort of a payoff, you know, a settlement beforehand, which would be reportable to the data bank. So if you do a high-low doctors out there who are listening and you do win nothing goes to the data bank so the high low is not only intelligent in certain cases certain circumstances where there may be a big hit at the end but for the physician unless the jury says you're guilty no matter how much that money was on the low end it's not reportable to the data bank 
Who has to agree on these numbers? Do both lawyers basically get together and say, we're going to do a high-low and well, they agree on it? Who decides we're doing the high-low? Well, one will approach the other to do a high-low, and that's not uncommon. The first thing that happens is you've gone through the deposition phases. You can't agree on a settlement figure. So what they do then is they often bring in a mediator who'll say, the impasse can't be reached, but what would the high-low numbers be? Now, a plaintiff's attorney is obligated to take that agreement back to his client and say, if we win, we get this. If we lose, they still have to give us something. Are you willing to do that? And in this case, they were willing to do that. But the obligation of the plaintiff is to take any offers back to his client and discuss them. Now, he can give advice, but he can't decide. Only the plaintiff that entity can decide whether they're willing to accept or reject a high-low offer. On the other side of that, for the defense, that's an insurance company decision. Almost never is the doctor a part of that. That's an insurance company decision because they're going to pay for the trial to go forward. The doctor will be exonerated or found guilty. So he really has no say in what goes on. Even if you have a permission to settle clause you can't stop a high-low arrangement for being done. That is interesting. We've run out of time. We have to do one of the month. Well, can I do one other thing? You better be, be quick. Okay. I don't know if you've heard about this, Greg, but this is done all the time, and now it's become more complicated. So a person has a kind of negative experience at your hospital, and you missed a little fracture that is of no consequence, and you feel, okay, fine. Just for PR and risk management purposes, I'm going to give them a discount on their bill. We do that all the time. Makes sense. You've got to be foolish to basically have people pay the co-pays and when there's been a problem. Well, CMS recently came out with a ruling that says if you reduce the payment to a Medicare patient, there are going to be terms under which you need to report that to us. Right. And you need to know about it because these are done through the billing company. The billing company needs to make this report. So you need to connect with your billing companies now and let them know whenever you're making one of these adjustments it's not that these adjustments can't be done, but some of them need to be reported to Medicare. Well, this is unintended consequences. We don't know yet what CMS is going to do with this. They want it reported to them. Are they going to then turn around and report this to the data bank? We don't know that. Well, this is even minor stuff. This is saying I'm taking $50 off your bill. This is an issue about payment related to there has always been this thing where you cannot waive co-payments on Medicare patients, and it falls under that aspect. It's not related to data bank issues at all. Rick, what I'm telling you is once the feds have information, you have no control over where that goes. The logical request would then be from the data bank to say, well, let's say this guy's had to have 10 different bills reduced in the last two years. I want to have that as a record so other people would know that there's been challenges to that person's care. Nobody knows what's going to happen to this yet, but be advised. Let's say the track record of the federal government in keeping things isolated into narrow uses is very small. Be that as it may, what we know now is if you make any reductions to your bill as a result of the person likely to seek additional medical care related to your visit, that you need to let your billing company know that. And you need to know this is now. This is not a contemplated. They, it's online, right. Right. And this is something that you should ask your billing companies about right now. 
This was clarified by CMS in a July, whatever they call right, it, bulletin right. or something yeah, like that. Yeah, the intermediary letter, right. So this is a warning to you that you need to do it. Yeah, and I think asking your billers, if you have outside billers, what is their plan is fine. But what this really is, is this is a warning for down the road. Exactly what's going to be used with this information, we're really not sure. But again, one of the great myths in America is, hello, I'm from the federal government, and I'm here to help. Okay. (laughs) Wine of the month. Gentlemen, I knew that you didn't think I'd do this again, but I am going to talk about one more Michigan wine. They only have two wines there, don't they? No, they don't. <laughs> yeah, we bottles. do. Yeah, that's right. And both of them have screw taps. But let me look here. There was, I mentioned last month, the Bowers Harbor Vineyards. I had a chance last month at an affair which was being given in northern Michigan to taste their 2009 Pinot Grigio. And I will tell you this, at 11 bucks a bottle... This is as good a Pinot Grigio as I've ever had. I have bottles in my cellar which are two and three times that. You know, European names on them, all that sort of thing. The truth of the matter is, this is fantastic. This would rival and sit nicely against any of the California Pinot Grigios. And at 11 bucks a bottle, I think we have found a wine which is useful, fun. You can buy this stuff by the case, Bowers Harbors Vineyards. Go online, get the stuff. It's great. Thank you. I like Pinot Grigio, so I'm going to try that, and I'll report back next month. That's all we have time for, ladies and gentlemen. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye.